For more than 3,300 years, the Jewish people have preserved and transmitted their wisdom about how to live life. From generation to generation, parents taught their children, teachers taught their students, in a living chain that stretches back to the giving of that great wisdom in the Sinai Desert. Perhaps never has there been a generation more desperately in need of this ancient wisdom. A wisdom today made available to the English-speaking world by scholars like Lawrence Kellerman. Sit back and enjoy while Lawrence Kellerman takes you on an adventure into the world of ancient wisdom for modern minds. When Yosef brought his children to get a bracha from their grandfather, Yaakov, he presented the children, Ephraim and Menashe, in the appropriate position so that the oldest child, Menashe, would receive Yaakov's right hand and the younger child, Ephraim, would receive Yaakov's left hand. For some reason, Yaakov switched his hands. The Psukim in Parshas Vayechi say, V'yar Yosef ki yashis avi v'yad yaminu al rosh Ephraim. Yosef saw that Yaakov had placed his right hand on the head of the younger child Ephraim. V'yirabeinav. It was evil in Yosef's eye. This is not the way that we do things. The oldest child gets the right hand. So Yosef reached out. He picked up Yaakov's hand, his right hand. He wanted to lift it off the head of Ephraim and he wanted to put it down on the head of Menashe. The Yomer Yosef el Aviv. Yosef said to his father, This is not how we do it, Abba. This is the firstborn. Put your right hand on Menashe's head. Yaakov refused. He put his hand back on Ephraim's head. I know, my son, I know. Even the younger child Ephraim, he will also become a great nation. He'll also become very big. The younger son is going to become very, very, very great. It's a very strange scene because it seems here that Yaakov was not acting out of Das. He had some sort of a warm feeling towards Ephraim. And he was acting based on feeling, which is not the way that we in Kleisrael act. We act based on das, on understanding. What exactly was Yaakov doing? And more than that, why is it that when Yosef said to him, Abba, what are you doing? He shook him out of his apparently emotional tremor. Why did Yaakov insist? And he said, I know, my son, I know, Yadati, it's coming from das, it's coming from das. A second question. There's an amazing scene in Sefer Malachim. Talks there about uh, a woman who was married to a very great man who passed away. And this woman cried out to Elisha. 
She said, my husband is dead. And you know that my husband, he always served Hashem. And now he's gone, there's no one to support me, and the creditor's coming. And he's going to take away my two sons to be slaves. So Elisha wanted to help this woman. He said to her, What can I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? So she said, that's the problem. I have nothing in my house. I have a little vial of oil, but besides that, I have nothing. So he said, here's what you should do. You should go borrow lots and lots of pots from your neighbors. And when you've got the pots, come into the house, shut the door. You and your sons can be in the room. And then take this little vial of oil that you have. And start to pour into all of the pots that you're going to be bringing in from all of your neighbors. So the lady went out. She brought the pots. She brought them back into her house. She put all the pots in front of her and she started to pour from this little vial of oil. So you can hear say it happened. But she poured and she poured and she poured and the vial of oil did not grow empty until all of the pots were full. When all the pots were full, the vial stopped, the vial stopped pouring. So, the question that bothers me here is, why did Elisha support this woman in this way? This man obviously had some sort of supernatural koach. He had an ability to do great things. So given this ability... Why did he ask her, what do you have in the house? Do you have a vial of oil? What, look, what, do you, what do you got? Why did he do that? Why did he just print dollar bills? Why did he just fill her cabinet with cans of beans? What was this whole Hatzagah, this, this, this play that he made, saying, what have you got? You've got a vial of oil? We'll work with that. Why that? Question number three, and this is getting more personal. I recognize that every person on this planet is given their own personal set of emishonos, their own personal tests. I recognize that my tests are not your tests. And your tests are not the same as the tests of the person sitting next to you. That's clear. What bothers me is that I don't know in advance what my emishonos are going to be. I don't know what my tests are going to be. And I find that just after the test is over, I realize, oh, I realized I could have passed the test. But I never realize until it's over. What I would like is an early warning system, like 24 hours or 40 hours before, you're going to get a test tomorrow at 11 o'clock. This is what's going to happen. Could you, could you just pass this test? If I could just have some warning, I'd be okay. If I knew what my tests were going to be, I would pass. Okay, now, what bothers me here is, Every morning I say, Shasali Koltsarki, Hashem gives me everything I need. But there's one thing that I don't get, which is early warning of what my Nishonas are going to be, and you just can't pass tests unless you get warning in advance of what they're going to be. At least I can't pass tests. So when I say Shasali Koltsarki, what am I saying that he takes care of all of my needs? I need early warning. Where's my early warning? Question number one, why did Yaakov switch his hands? What did he have in mind? Yadati bini Yadati. Was it really coming from Das? Question number two. Why did Elisha need a vial of oil to take care of this woman? Why couldn't he just make things out of thin air? Question number three. Why am I not aware of 
And he's showing us, I'm going to get in advance. Question number four, and this is also quite personal. I have a pretty clear vision of what I want to be. Between you and me, I'm not making progress very quickly. I have a picture. I, I, I know I could be a certain kind of side, I could be a certain kind of Talmud Hochum, and I seem stuck. I'm just crawling along. My Yerushalayim is not where it's supposed to be. My Chesed is not where it's supposed to be. My Sablanus is not where it's supposed to be. I'm not the person that I really want to be. And if I was progressing slowly, I'd say fine. But I can only go through so many Yom Kippurs, so many Rosh Hashanahs, so many Tishbaavs, and keep saying, well, next year it's going to be better. But the reality is, I'm not getting there. So, what's going wrong here? Why am I not becoming the person that I want to be? With these four questions on the table, I want to try to share an idea about Kedusha, an idea about serving Hashem with all our brachos. Why did Yaakov switch his hands? And what kind of answer was it? Yadati bin Yadati. I know my son, I know. In 1934, my Rebbe and a bunch of other people were sitting in a little base midrash in a little town in Poland called Mir. And the Meshkiach there, Rabbi Yuchim Lubavitz, got up and he asked this question, what's with, what's with Yaakov switching his hands? And Rabbi Yuchim explained like this, he said, Yaakov did not have the ability to switch the order of the brachos. He couldn't do it. I mean, he could try to do it, but if he tried to do it, no bracha would come out. Yaakov couldn't switch the order of the brachos. And because he couldn't switch the order of the brachos, that's why he knew to put his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Menashe, because that was the seder of the brachos. Rukum said, Yaakov could only give a bracha to each one of the boys according to that boy's teva, that boy's nature. In other words, a tzaddik who's giving a bracha, he's not some supernatural sort of vending machine. You drop a quarter into and then get out whatever bracha you want. Rather, the only bracha that a tzaddik can give is the bracha that is re'ui for that particular person. I'm sure that Yaakov wanted to give Menashe the, the right hand, but he couldn't do it. Because Menashe didn't have the teva, the teva of the bachor. And Ephraim did. Why can't the tzaddik give any bracha he wants? So the the reason is because only a Kodesh Baruch Hu can create Yesh Ma'ayin. Only a Kodesh Baruch Hu creates Ex Nihilo. Something from nothing. All that we can do is once there's something there, we can give a bracha from the word Brecha, a pool, something that's overflowing. 
That is, we can make something that already exists overflow. But we can't create something out of nothing. Ulai, this is what's meant by the Pasuk, at the end of the brachos that Yaakov gave. This is what the Father spoke, and he gave a bracha. Yaakov blessed each child according to his bracha. Now, if you read this Pasuk without the concept that we're speaking about, it makes no sense. He gave each child a bracha according to the bracha, according to the bracha he had, but he didn't have a bracha until I gave him a bracha. So what does it mean? He gave him a bracha according to the bracha that he already possessed. And the answer is, that's all we can do. We can take what we've got and we can make more of it. But we can't create out of thin air. I remember years ago, I went to my Rebbe, and there were a whole bunch of people standing there. Everyone was asking for different brachas. And he gave these beautiful brachas to all these people who were standing there. Gave brachas for Parnassah. He gave brachas for Yeshiver Yisrael. He gave all sorts of brachas. And I came to my Rebbe and I said, Rebbe, can I have a bracha? And Rebbe said to me, no. He said, you already have the bracha of Rav and Abayah. What do you need another bracha for? And I bichlal didn't understand what he was talking about. I bichlal didn't understand. What about a bracha for this or for that? And he said, that bracha I can't give you. Right now you're sitting and learning. Right now you're Rosh Hashanah and Gemara. So I can give to you the bracha of Rav and Abayah. That bracha you already have. No new brachas. Only what you already have that I can give you. Of course, this also answers the second question we asked. The Mitzvah's David, he says, what exactly was this business with the vial? Why did he say, what do you have in the house? What can I put a bracha on? So Lisha's asking, show me who you are already. Show me what gifts you've been given by God. Once you show me those, then I can help those grow bigger. The Mitzvah was saying, Mitzvah said that, that, that Elisha was saying, Show me something that I can make the bracha be sure on. So, I understand a little bit about what happened there with Yaakov, what happened with Elisha. But the personal stuff is always the hard stuff to resolve. We're all giving different nishonos. If I only knew what my nishonos were going to be, I'd be fine. So I cannot tell you the personal excitement that I felt when I happened across this medrash and I realized the medrash was the early warning system. This medrash, if you read it properly, it will tell you exactly what your, your, your nishonos are going to be so that you can prepare yourself in advance. And bid you guaranteed, this medrash explains what your nishonos today is going to be. Even better, it explains what your nishonos tomorrow is going to be as well. The Medrash says like this. I want to give you a mashal to a fellow who grew flax. Flax is probably the finest of all of the plant products that we can grow. Wool might be the finest of all the animal products. Flax is probably the finest of all the plant products. So if you're going to talk about something sprouting, like human beings are tzomeach, they sprout. So if you want to know what the finest 
product, the process sprout, how it sprouts, how does flax, how does a human being sprout? The Midrash says, Keshepishtani loka, when the, when the guy is growing flax that year, has a bad crop, then the man is growing the flax, he does not take a stick and go out and beat the flax. Because if he beats a bad crop, it'll split, it'll open, it'll die. However, when the pishtan, when the flax is in great shape, who makes he gets out there with a stick and he beats the flax. Lama, why? Because then the flax goes greater and greater and greater. A fantastic crop. That you get out there and beat. A weak crop, don't touch it because it'll break. Rebuchim Levavitz, the Meshkiach and Mir, he had a fantastic shot in a Pasuk. I've never seen the shot before, but when you hear the shot, it's got to be the most Pasuk shot. The Pasuk at the Hillam says, Hashem Tzadik Yivchon. Hashem tests a Tzadik. So I always understood this means that Hashem tests Tzadikim, but he doesn't test for Shaim. That's why I feel so complimented. But the reality is that I'm not such a big tzaddik. So why do I get these shonos? So Rabbi Rucham says a pshat, which has to be the pshat pshat. Rabbi Rucham says like this. Amru Chazal, our sages teach us, embrace his rabbi. Hashem only tests tzaddikim. Below it's a rishoyim. And, and he doesn't test rishoyim. Doesn't test evil people, only righteous people. Lama, Why? Because a Russia, a person is evil, he's selfish, he's not going to be able to withstand the test, he's going to end up failing. So Rebuchim says, This is not just a principle about people who are totally righteous and people who are totally evil. The exact same man, a Benoni, an ordinary person, me, but tzaddik atzmo, in the tzaddik aspect of that person, God will only test him in the area where he's the tzaddik. In this matter, and in these midos where he's very strong, in that area, that's where Hashem tests a person. There the person has a chance of being successful. Ubekalhu Lamod Vinasyam. It's very easy for him to stand in the Nisayam. Visham Hashem That's what it means when the Pasuk says, Hashem tests Sadiqim. He tests me only where I'm a tzaddik. I was thinking this would explain beautifully why Yosef got the bizarre test that he got. I mean, just so far out. What a horrible thing to happen to such a nice kid. The kid is such a tzaddik. He wants to be such a tahor, a kadosh. He ends up being sold down to Mitzrayim. Fine, so he has to sit in a prison. It's not a big deal. He ends up being sold into slavery. Okay, fine, so he'll be a slave. Not a big deal. But he ends up in this house with Potiphar. And all he wants is Kedusha. And all he wants is Tyra. And this lady is making him crazy. 
Why did he get that test dafka? So I looked back at the brachas. What does it say? Amar Yaakov the Yosef. Yaakov said to Yosef, Birchos avicha gavra birchos horai. The brachas that I, Yaakov, received were much greater than the brachas of my parents. Atayvus give us olam till the ends of the earth. And now he tries to pass this brach onto his son, Yosef. Tienel Rosh Yosef. May my blessings be on the head of Yosef. Here comes the line. Ilakad kod, and on the skull of Nazir Echov, the Nazir of his brothers. May my blessing go on to the Nazir of the brothers. So, you could understand this as, may the blessing go on to the one who was Nazir, he was separated out from all the other brothers because the brothers didn't like him. But why come up with a drusha like that? Just to say the Pashib shot of the words. That Yosef was Bativo by his nature, he was a Nazir. He was the kind of person who pulled back from, from the pleasures of this world. He was naturally a Poresh, a Kadosh. To check my shot, I looked at the Targum. The Targum says, Let the bracha of Yaakov be on Prisha Dachohe. May, may the bracha be on the, the Poresh, the separated one, the one who pulled back from the physical pleasures of this world. Let the bracha be on his head. Meaning, from the earliest years, Yosef was made for the Messiah of Potiphar. And Yosef knew himself. I'm sure he realized at some point in his life, this was going to be the Messiah. Because that was his strength. That was the area where he was the strongest. And so, of course, the Baruch was going to let him have it in that particular area. That was the area where it would be the easiest for him to be successful. There's areas, if you look at Yosef's weaknesses, there's areas he could have been tested and Hashem didn't test him there. Because Yosef probably, Yosef Atzadi, probably would not have passed in those areas. And Hashem does not come to burden his creatures. Hashem tests us only in the areas of our strengths. So I'm running with this theme, working this out. And I'm thinking, who else came up with crazy Mishonas during their lifetimes? Things that you would like never want to be surprised by. And I was thinking, Nebuch Yehuda. What a horrible situation he ended up in. Now, Without any prior notice, he never could have actually been successful. But of course, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave him plenty of prior notice because HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave him these strengths and Yehuda was amazing. He understood who he was. The Pasuk says, Yehuda, atal yaducha yoducha achecha. So there's two ways to read this Pasuk. You could read it as, Yehuda, you, your brothers, will acknowledge. But why make a drasha? Just read it as Pashif. Yehuda, you are the acknowledger among your, your brothers. You are the one who is great at Hodaya, at acknowledging. I looked at the Targum. What does the Targum say? Yehuda, at Odesa, velo behetata. Yehuda, you will acknowledge, that is, you will admit, and you will not be embarrassed. That is your nature. To confirm, I looked up in the Bereshis Rabbah, the Medrash. The Medrash says, Leah tafsa plach odaya. Leah chose the avodas Hashem of acknowledging. She acknowledged Hashem for all the gifts she had been given. For that reason, 
Amdue Mena, there came from her Bale Hodaya, people who were great at acknowledging. Yehuda, for instance, the Pasuk says, V'yakir Yehuda, V'yomer Tzad Kamimeni. Yehuda looked and he saw and he said, the Tamar was Tzadka Mimeni. She's a Tzadakis. And the child is from me. Rabbi Yochum Levavitzan just commented. He said, this Mila of Hodah Barabim, of being able to admit something in public, Hayalo Mitzativo, that was part of who Yehuda was by nature, Yerusha Milei, he got it as a Yerusha from his mother. This is like everything the kids inherit from their parents. You want to know your Nishonos? Look back a generation. Look at the greatness of your parents. Look at that greatness that passed from your parents into you. Like the Gemara says, The child is the foot of the mother. Meaning my greatness is what I give on to my kids. And the greatness that my parents had is what they give on to me. And that's why my parents had their Nishonos. And that's why I have my Nishonos. There's no Mikra. It's not random. It's not that Hashem is trying to surprise us. We just didn't have the equation. How do we know what He's going to test us with? He says, What's the big deal that Yehuda admitted and therefore he, was, he merited to be the king? Like, why did he merit being the king? Just because he admitted it was easy for him. It was natural. Now, here is how much Hashem loves you. Look what Rebbe says. He says, We learn from here, a wondrous foundational principle. Only by guarding and exploiting the good milas that came to you easily the things that you acquired naturally. Only through that, only through that will a person acquire all of their perfection, all of their merit. Mishum, because the the truth is, my whole vote in this world, it's just doing what comes natural for me, doing what comes easy for me. Hashem loves you so much, He said, don't sweat. Take it easy. Just grab a hold of your strengths. Run with those. You'll see you'll be amazing. So if I don't want to miss my Nishonos, I just have to look inwards, see who I am, and then I know what's coming. Of course, the trick here is I've got to be honest. I have to admit who I really am and who I'm not. That leads to the answer to the fourth question. I know who I want to be. And I keep banging my head against the wall and I'm just not getting any place. I'm not becoming that person that I envisioned. Let me rephrase it, maybe in the language somebody else might use. The friends who I want to accept me aren't accepting me. The men who I want to marry me, aren't marrying me. The Parnassa that I really want, I'm not getting. The role in the community that I think I should have, no one's handing to me. 
And I keep banging my head against the wall and it's not coming to me. It obviously could be that I'm trying to become somebody who I'm not. And that's why I'm not experiencing any success. My Rebbe taught me that there are people who they run away from Hashem and then they curse Hashem when they don't get Hashkacha Pratis, when they don't get miracles in their life. Why is Hashem ignoring me? My Rebbe said, this person is running mamish away from Hashem. Hashem planted the Hashkacha, the miracles are waiting for them right over there on that path over there. And they're running down this path over here. And if they would just turn and go back to that path, they would experience miracle after miracle after miracle because that's the Hashkacha, that they should be themselves. Not that they should try to become somebody else. Have somebody else's parnasa. Have somebody else's role in the community. Have somebody else's husband or wife. The key is being honest and knowing myself. I don't mean chas settling for being a number two. The exact opposite. If I try to imitate you, I'll be a poor imitation, a number two version of you. But if I just try to become myself, then I'll become a number one. More and more these days, I've been hearing a complaint from people. They come to me and they say, you know, I just can't find a community where I fit in. I just can't find such a place. I tried this community, I tried this community, I just don't fit in. So I explain. The problem is you keep trying to find a community that is exactly like you. And you know what? There's no one like you on the planet. There's no one with your psychological profile. There's no one with your intellectual profile. There's no one with your emotional profile. There's no one with your spiritual profile. You are a billion times more unique than your fingerprint. So if you're going to try to find a community like you, you're never going to find it. What are you looking for? You're really looking for a community that has nobody like you. So that they need you. So that you can make your contribution there by tuning into your strengths and becoming you. And when that happens, the whole community will beg you, please come, stay, don't leave. We can't function without you because there's no one who could give us what you have. Because there's no one like you. I have to confess that I'm particularly bad at this lesson that I'm trying to give over to you. Years ago, I was sitting with my Rebbe. And he saw clearly I was trying to imitate him. And my Rebbe looked at me and he said, Lave, why God make you? He already had me. Ulai, this was the mistake that Noach made. Ulai, Noach tried to become someone different than he was. Masha'enkin Avraham just tried to follow his own path. And that's why Avraham got special hashkacha. Rebbeuchim says in the famous Chazal, on the Pasuk, Et Elohim Yishalech Noach. Noach walked with God. Chazal say, Noach hayatzarech sad letomcho. 
Noach needed assistance to hold him up. Doesn't say why, just says he was weak. He couldn't hold himself up. Why? Why didn't he have his own strength? So it's revealed in the second half of the Chazal about Avram. Avraham strengthened himself and he walked in his own righteousness from himself. Avram looked into himself and said, who am I supposed to be and became that? I always think it's funny. At the Yomiyun, when they ask us to speak, they give us all the exact same topic. So, I'm always panicked. I'm going to give the exact same speech as Mrs. Tarshi. So, everyone's going to get up and walk out. But somehow it never happens. And you could have 50 speakers, as long as they're people who are honest with themselves, and everyone will come and speak about the same topic, and each person will say something completely different. Because every person is looking into themselves and walking their own path and saying their own Torah. So, as I walk away from this board, it seems like a very nice little Dvar Torah. There's just one small problem. And that is, I basically condemned us all to mediocrity. Why? So fine. So Nebuch, I'll become me in the areas that I'm strong, which is not very much. So I'm really not going to go very far. I mean, I've got so little to work with, so I'll keep concentrating on that. And in that one small area, I'll become great. But what about the rest of me? So, my Rebbe used to give a shear. He gave it many times. Each time the shear sounded a little bit different, but each time it was the exact same theme. He talked to people about how long it takes to repair a single midah. And that realistically, a person should probably work two, three, four, five years in our generation. Two, three, four, five years on a single midah. And then after two, three, four, five years, when you get dry, you just feel you can't push any further. Then, not because you perfected the meter, but switch to something else for a while. And you come back to it in 20, 25 years, you can come back to that meter again. But for a long time on one meter. So I asked them, but what about all my other meters? During that time, what's going to be with them? And he said, remember the shear? And there's the shear that he always gave. The shear was, he was starting to say, okay, listen. Let's say a person, they don't want to work on anything spooky, something down-to-earth and grounded. Let's work on chesed. We'll work on kindness. Just that. So the person's going to work on kindness. Now, if you're going to work on kindness, part of your abode is going to be, you can't just be kind to people that you meet in the morning. You also have to be kind to people you meet in the afternoon. A kind person is kind to people morning, afternoon, and night. You can't just be kind to people that you meet on Mondays and Tuesdays. You have to be kind to people you meet on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. And you can't just be kind to men. You also have to be kind to women. And you can't just be kind to whites. You also have to be kind to blacks. And of course, you can't just be kind to Jews. You also have to be kind to non-Jews. That's part of the meat of chesed. And you can't just be kind to Jews and non-Jews. You also have to be kind to dogs and cats. If a person is very kind to people, but they're very cruel to animals, that's not called chesed. And of course, a person can't just be kind to people and to cats and to dogs and be cruel to Hashem, you have to be kind to Hashem. If you're going to be kind to Hashem, minimally you should probably talk to Him, which means you have to work on tefillah. But you can't work on tefillah without working on rikus, on concentration. 
So you really have to work on concentration. But you can't work on concentration without working on Seder. So you really have to work on Seder, on being orderly. But you can't work on being orderly without having Menuchas and Nefesh. So you really have to work on Menuchas and Nefesh, a sense of inner peace. And you can't work on Menuchas and Nefesh without having a sense of Bitachon. So really you should be working on Bitachon. He did this for 45 minutes, each time starting with a different Mida, each time showing that every Mida is connected in a net to every other Mida. So it doesn't make a difference which one you grab. If you grab any Mida and you lift, then all the Midas go up with that Mida. So given that's the case, why reach down and try to pick something up that's going to break your back? Grab something that comes up light, that comes up easy. Work with your strengths. And if you work with your strengths, then everything will become repaired. That's the Rebbeinu Yonah. Gomorrah says, someone who makes themselves a, a, a kavua place, a, an established place for their tefillah. So when the person dies, Hashem mourns. What a chassid, what a tzaddik, what a wonderful human being. So Rebbeinu Yonah asks, I understand. All the lady did was she made a specific spot where she would dive in her tefillah. That's all. And when she dies, she gets the praises that are attributed to the Avos, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Why? So Rebbeinu Yon explains, because this person took Tila so seriously that she would only daven in one spot in her house. There was this place set aside for Tila. That means that it, I take Tila very, very seriously. Just like there's a certain place in the house where I keep my jewelry or a certain place in the house where I keep my favorite suit. I hang in a, a special spot. Why? Because it's chashiv to me. If it's chashiv, you have a special spot for it. So, tefillah is chashiv to this person. So, Rebbeinu Yonah says, it's not because the person made themselves a makom kavua, a special place to daven, that they end up being such a tzaddik that Hashem gives them this incredible hesped. That's not why. Rather, the fact they made themselves that spot is a sign of how important tefillah was. And if tefillah was that important to them, they're going to work on all these meals that they need for tefillah. They'll work on humility, They'll work on Bitachon, they'll work on Seder, they'll work on all these different Midos. They'll end up becoming a tzaddik just because tefillah is so important to them. And that's why Hashem warns them, because they really are like Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov by the end of their lives. So it turns out, if I would just focus on my strength, everything would get repaired. I'll leave you with two stories and a thought. It's probable that in the middle of the 19th century, certainly one of the Gedolei Ador was a fellow by the name of Rav Yisrael Lipkin, also known as Rav Yisrael Mesalant. Yisrael, it's well known, was a, an absolute genius. The story is told about him that he was trying to spread Musar across Europe and there was a lot of opposition People didn't understand, why not just sit in Steig? Why, why actually work on Midos? And in order to impress people, first as a Torah scholar, so that people would listen to him, he went from city to city, shul to shul, base midrash to base midrash. And what he would do is he would paste a list of Mormakomos, of sources, on the bulletin board of the base midrash or the shul, and he would come back 24 hours later to that shul after everyone had had a time to look over the sources and he would give a speech. In those days, people scoured the bulletin board of the base midrash 
in Vilna, like today they scour the movies that are playing in New York. So they, they, he, they would go and see what all these sources are to see, like, okay, I'll prepare myself and I'll show up and see who this fellow is, Rav Yisrael Salanter. So what happened? He put up a, a list of more Makomas of sources. And uh, there was a person who was very anti-Musar, who did something which is not nice. He took down the sources. He wrote out a list of random Torah sources and he pasted those up on the base Midrash wall so that all the people who were going to prepare for Rav Shir would not be familiar with the sources Rav Yisrael was actually going to be talking about. Rav Yisrael came back 24 hours later. He walked into the base Midrash. As he was walking to the base Midrash, he looked over and he noticed on the wall someone had ripped down the sources that he'd put up and put up a completely different set of sources. Rav Slanter, we have an eyewitness report from when it was telling me to Rav in Petersburg. Rav said, Rav looked over, he glanced at the sources, obviously memorized them, then walked into the maze just went up to the podium, he put down his head for a full minute, then looked up, and he gave a one-hour schmooze, which was an absolutely brilliant, lightning-bolt schmooze on the sources that were po- pasted outside the base Midrash. So the people in the, in the base Midrash had no idea what had just happened, but they were blown away by his schmooze. Afterwards, Rav Itzala, who really knew what had happened, came up to him and said, Rebbe, I know that it did not take you an entire minute to put together that schmooze. What were you doing with your head down for a minute? And Rishra looked up at him sheepishly and said, you're right, it did not take an entire minute for me to put together that shmuz. I just wasn't sure if it would be a gaiva, if it would be hadi, for me to give that shmuz in front of you, knowing that you would know that I had put it together so quickly. And it took me a full minute to make the calculation, is it hadiness or is it kiddush Hashem? After a minute, I decided it was kiddush Hashem, so I gave the shmuz. That was the brain of Rishra Salanter. And Rav Yisrael said about himself, and this is the reason I told you the story. Rav Yisrael said, Amnam yodeyani. I know that I have the head of a thousand people. I mean, I have the brains of a thousand people put together. So he says, Corresponding to this, I have an avoda upon me. I have a job that is a job of a thousand people. There was once a young Avrech, Koloman, who was sitting on a bench with his Rebbe. They were looking over a beautiful nof, a beautiful view, and there were these birds that were catching wind and flying up the hill and then turning and sailing down effortlessly to the bottom of the hill and then Again, just by turning their wings, picking up the wind and flying back up the hill again without ever flapping a wing. And obviously the birds were having fun. And there was a massive group of them. As each time they caught the wind as a group together, they came sailing up to the top of the hill. The Talmud had learned from his Rebbe to be mispoiled, to be moved by the wonders of nature because you can see Hashem's hand there. And the Talmud turned to the Rav and said, Nifla, look how wondrous this is. And the Rav turned to the Talmud and he said, What is the big deal? Why are you being so mispoiled? So the Talmud shocked, turned to the, to the Rav and said, You taught me to be so mispoiled over nature. Look at how wondrous this is. 
And the Rebbe turned back and said, these birds are just doing what they were created to do. If you, he said to the Talmud, would just do what you were created to do, people would also stand back and say, Nifla! This, I think, according to Masil Shisharim, is Kedusha. It's when you take the gifts that are placed into your hands and you use them to serve Hashem. To run after somebody else's gifts, that's not called Kedusha. Not according to any of our Makoros. But to take all the gifts that Hashem does give us and be Makadish them, to use them for Hashem, that's called Kedusha. If you sing, sing. If you dance, dance. You can write, write. You know how to raise kids? Raise kids. You can comfort people. Do that. You have a special koch for tzniyas, for anava. Whatever mitos you were given to run with those, that's called kedusha, exploiting the gifts that Hashem gave to you for the sake of Hashem. May it be Hashem's will that each of us merit to wake up and to see the gifts that have been placed into our hands, to focus on what we've got instead of what the next person's got. May it be God's will that by focusing on these gifts, we'll get really excited about our personal avoda and not have a desire to pursue somebody else's path. And may it be Hashem's will that through this Kedusha, by exploiting the gifts that we've been giving and serving Hashem with all of our gifts, that we'll make a tikkun in the world the world's been waiting for. And therefore, very soon, today, Mirz Hashem, we'll see the coming of Mashiach Bimheira Vimeinu. That concludes our presentation of Ancient Wisdom for Modern Minds by Lawrence Kellerman. For more texts by Lawrence Kellerman, visit www.lawrencekellerman.com. That's www.lawrencekellerman.com.